Welcome back to the Book Club Commune with me, your host, Ivy Poesy. Today we are going to be reading Chapter 16 of Black Bolshevik, Preparing for Battle, 8th Convention of the CPUSA. Uh, this is a pretty long chapter. It's very wordy. There's a lot of terms. It's almost entirely focused on the 8th Convention of the CPUSA, with a little bit of touch on, on the LSNR in the last section. Um, but besides that, I don't have much to say on it before we get into it, so let's just go ahead and get into this chapter. Chapter 16, Preparing for Battle, 8th Convention of the CPUSA. The 8th Convention of the CPUSA was held in Cleveland, Ohio, April 2nd to the 8th, 1934. It convened in a world situation of rising fascism and the growing threat of war. Hitler had come to power in Germany the year before and had embarked on a campaign of imperialist aggression. He had promoted a fascist coup in Austria and had reoccupied the Rhineland. In Asia, his Japanese imperial allies had overrun northeast China as a first step towards establishing their Asian co-prosperity sphere, which envisioned the conquest of Asia and the Pacific. Mussolini was planning the invasion of Ethiopia, which took place the following year. At home, the economic crisis had passed its lowest ebb in 1933 and had now leveled off into a deep-going depression. There was no recovery in sight as a high rate of unemployment persisted. It was becoming clear that Roosevelt's New Deal and National Recovery Act, the NIR, were attempts to bridge the, the most difficult period for the monopoly capitalists and begin the restoration of their profits. This was indicated in the enormous bounties being poured out by the Reconstruction Finance Corporation and the ruinous effects of inflation and price fixing in the reduction of wor workers' real wages. Workers, however, were fighting back with in an unprecedented display of militancy and solidarity involving blacks, whites, women, youth, skilled and unskilled workers, native and foreign-born. Strike, a strike wave had engulfed the entire nation with over a million workers on strike in 1934, the biggest mass upheaval of workers in the history of the country. I arrived in Cleveland several days early and stopped at the Black YMCA on Euclid Avenue. I spent these days putting the finishing touches on my report on the party's Afro-American work. As head of the CP's Black Department, it was my responsibility to present such a report to the 8th Convention. Before I arrived in Cleveland, I had attended the convention of District 16 in Birmingham, Alabama. District conventions were held throughout the country in a few weeks before the national gathering. These meetings summed up the pre-convention discussion which had begun six months earlier with the publication of the draft resolution on the work and tasks of the party. The draft was discussed at all levels, shop and street, units, and sections. Amendments were formulated and disagreements argued out. Delegates to the 8th convention were also elected at the district meetings. I arrived promptly on Monday morning, April 2nd, at the Prospect Avenue and Auditorium, where the convention was to be held. The auditorium was located in a once-proud but now crisis-stricken residential neighborhood. Delegates from all parts of the country were arriving. After registering, I began circulating among them. The composition of the delegates was impressive. There were a number of older party veterans whose faces I already knew, but the majority seemed relatively young, rank-and-file leaders fresh from the struggles. They appeared expectant and eager, self-confident, girding for a new push towards revolutionary goals outlined in the draft resolution. They were gathered in the groups, exchanging experiences. 
among the 233 regular delegates were a significant percentage of blacks, 39 altogether. In my position as head of the black department, I had become acquainted with a great number of the party's black cadre, or had at least known of their work. But it was heartening to see so many new faces among them. I was particularly happy to see the delegation of sharecroppers from Tallapoosa County. Their spokesman appeared to be Eula Gray, the niece of Ralph Gray, the sharecropper who had been killed at the Camp Hill shootout. I believe I had met her at the home of Tom Gray the summer before. She was a lively and attractive young woman with big bright eyes. Later in the convention, she was to give a rousing report to the delegates on the activities of the Tallapoosa County Young Communist League. Describing the work of the youth cadres, she stated that the youths made up 2,000 of the 6,000 members of the sharecroppers union. She ended her speech. As she ended her speech, she led delegates in singing the revolutionary verse of the old spiritual, We Shall Not Be Moved. Lenin is our teacher. We shall not be moved. Just like a tree that's standing by the water, we shall not be moved. Al Murphy, secretary of the Sharecroppers Union, was also present. As usual, he maintained a low profile, pushing the local leaders to the force to the fore. There were also delegates from our fraternal parties of Cuba, Mexico, and Canada, among others. To my surprise and pleasure, I saw among them my old Lenin School classmate, the Irishman Sean Murray. He had come to the U.S. to bring greetings from the recently organized Irish Communist Party of which he was general secretary, and to tour the country to rally support for a united, independent Ireland. Langston Hughes, an important figure in, black, in the Black Renaissance of the 20s, had recently returned from a year's stay in the Soviet Union. On a, he composed a poem, Put One More S in the USA, especially for the convention. The convention opened with a gigantic mass rally on the night of April 2nd. The main hall of the auditorium was packed with delegates and visitors. Among the speakers were Robert Miner, Max Bedak, James Ford, and Clarence Hathaway. Bill Foster, the party chairman, was unable to attend since he had not fully recovered from a heart attack he suffered in the 1932 election campaign. He sent a message which was read and greeted with thunderous applause, as was the draft reply which wished him a speedy recovery and a quick return to the front lines of the battle. The meeting adopted a manifesto calling upon the workers to take a revolution, the revolutionary way out of the crisis in the fight for bread and work and against war and fascism. The business sessions opened in the morning of April 3rd with the election of the pres presiding committee. The stage was dominated by the backdrop of a mural showing a mighty worker's arm wielding an axe of the united class struggle, bursting the chains of capitalist oppression. Chairs and standing ovation greeted the nomination of honorary members of the Presidium, among whom which included Joseph Stalin, Ernst Thalmann, German leader imprisoned by the Nazis, and Georgi Dmitriev, hero of the Reichstag trial. He had exposed the flimsy frame of the Nazi criminals, and his release had been forced by the international protest. The mood of the delegates was enthusiastic, eager, expectant, and determined. We felt then that the country teetered on the edge of a revolutionary upsurge, on the eve of historic and revolutionary struggles. Thus we prepared for battle. The main task of the convention was mapping out a strategy to win the masses to the revolutionary way out of the crisis. Browder, the party's general secretary, stepped forth. How this task was to be accomplished was the cent central thrust of his five-hour report, frequently interrupted by applause. <clears throat> In a dramatic analysis of the word, world and domestic situation, Browder stated, 
Our task is to win the majority of the working class to our program. We do not have unlimited time to accomplish this goal. Tempo, speed of development of our work, becomes the decisive factor in determining victory or defeat. For fascism is rearing its ugly head ever more boldly every day. Taking the line of the 13th plenum of the ECCI, he said, the world stands on the brink of revolution and wars. Even the United States, still the strongest fortress of the world, capitalism, has been stripped of its last shred of exceptionalism and stands fully exposed to the fury of the storms of the crisis. He went on to expose the first phase of Roosevelt's New Deal program. Roosevelt promises to feed the hungry by reducing the production of food. He promises to redistribute wealth by billions in subsidies to the banks and corporations. He gives help to the, to the forgotten man by speeding up the process of monopoly and trustification. He would increase purchasing power of the masses through inflation, which would give them a dollar only worth 60 cents. He restores the faith of the masses in democracy by beginning the introduction of fascism. After recording the party's substantive gains since the last convention, Browder went on to list the immediate tasks in the current period. He called for an extension of the united front from below, with its only condition being unity and struggle, and the fusion and a fusion for the fight for immediate partial demands with the revolutionary fight for the overthrow of capitalism. In line with this task, he urged a sharpened attack against the AFL bureaucracy, the Socialist Party, and all reformist and renegade groups. On Black struggle, Browder called for strengthening the party's work among Blacks in basic industry, steel, coal, packing houses, and marine. The Black workers should be organized into revolutionary trade unions around issues of job discrimination and democratic trade union rights. He urged for an accelerated fight against lynching and for the freedom of the Scottsboro Boys and Angelo Herndon. In addition, it was the job of the party to raise the slogan of equal rights and for the right of self-determination in the Black Belt. But these tasks could only be accomplished only be fulfilled, Browder asserted, with the uncompromising fight against the main danger, white chauvinism. It was also necessary to fight against petty bourgeois nationalist tendencies among blacks. At the close of his speech, Browder called for a party rooted among the workers and toiling farmers. Once Browder had outlined the general priorities regarding the black struggle, it was my job, as reporter for the Central Committee on the Question, to elaborate in detail and clear up some of the confusion around black reformism and petty bourgeois nationalism. This was particularly important because, uh, for the first time in the party's history, we had a significant petty bourgeois nationalist deviation, which was surfacing within our own ranks. The general revolutionary perspective outlined by Browder on the Afro-American question meant a sharpened clash with the forces of black reformism in both its assimilationist and nationalist forms. This reformist ideology was the main obstacle in the road to achieving the hegemony of black workers in the liberation, of, in the liberation struggle. It was now a we or they situation, I maintained. My assessment of the struggle came out of the party's experience in its three-year struggle to free the Scottsboro Boys. Scottsboro represented our first serious challenge to recognize black reformist leadership. The activities of the reformist leaders had increased in direct proportion to, our, to the increase of our revolutionary influence among the masses. The party's strategy at the time was to wrest hegemony from the reformists and win the leadership of black workers in the black, in the black freedom front. The black proletariat, led by communists vanguard, was then and remains today the only class that can unite the broad masses of black people 
and give the freedom struggle a consistently anti-imperialist content and character, thus building its alliance with its working class as the whole. In order to carry out this strategy, it was important for us to understand the, that the attitude of the black bourgeoisie towards imperialism was not euphemism. On the one hand, there is a com- capitulatory, compromising, and, in this country, assimilationist trend. And on the other, a nationalist sort of ghetto bourgeois tendency. The main social base of this latter trend is among the ghetto petty bourgeoisie, small businessmen, the intelligentsia, ministers, professionals, and the like, who are the most outspoken representatives of bourgeois nationalist movements. Both trends are, in essence, reformist, as they seek a solution to the question within the framework of the existing imperialist-dominated social structure. Permit me a brief digression to describe the disposition of class forces in the black community as they existed at that time. I would say here that my brief analysis of somewhat from benefits somewhat from hindsight. In 1934, the dominant tendency of black reformism was bourgeois assimilationism, reflecting the strivings and ambitions of the top layers of what Du Bois calls the talented tenth. These elites were wealthy professionals, a sprinkling of successful businessmen, top echelon leaders, upper bracket educators, local politicians, and the like. Centered in the top leadership of the NAACP, Urban League, and associate organizations, their orientation for progress was via acceptance into the white world. They saw the solution through a slow evolutionary process under the benefit benevolent auspices of enlightened imperialism and its liberal detachment. Supporters of this trend tend to be staunchly anti-nationalist and can only see advancement for blacks through aping the white establishment. The influence at the top assimilationist group within the black movement derived not from its economic strength, but from its control of the main media of mass influence in the black community, the press and administration of educational and community and cultural institutions. It had strings extending into the top leadership of the whole complex of black life on all its levels, ministerial, alliances, professional and fraternal organizations, women's clubs, and the like. They received heavy support in the columns and editorials of the big capitalist press and were the main dispensers of the white ruling class patronage. In 1940, Du Bois criticized the NAACP leadership because it regarded the organization as a weapon to attack the the sort of social discrimination that especially irks them, rather than as an organization to improve the status and power of the whole black group. I pointed out in, in my report that they believe the fate of the black masses is bound up in the maintenance of capitalism. This view, of course, implies collaboration with the white imperious rulers, or in the words of the NAACP, leaders united front of the best elements of both races. This type of front could only be built in opposition to the rising movement of black and white toilers, especially against its leaders, the communists. Indeed, it was the white liberal element within the U.S. bourgeoisie who launched the NAACP in 1911 and thenceforward held veto power over all its decisions. They intervened in the movement when Booker T. Washington, Tuskegee Machine, was under heavy fire from the Young Turks of of the Niagara Movement led by W.E.B. Du Bois and Monroe Trotter.
big business alerted by the danger to sane leadership represented represented by an uncontrolled black movement rushed forward to the danger spot. The young intellectuals of the Niagara movement were overwhelmed by the new imperious pleaders for its cause. They were subject to sustained wooing by humanitarian millionaires, backed up by hard cash in the form of subsidiaries to black education, health, and religious projects. White wealthy philanthropists like Joel, Joel Springarn and Mary White Omington held decisive positions of leadership in the organization. Its circle of supporters included millionaires like Miss Cyrus McCormick and Harvey Firestone. As Ralph Bishop aptly observed, the NAACP, propelled by dominant white hands, embarked upon the civil liberation course that the Black-inspired Niagara movement had futilely tried to navigate. The leadership of the NAACP is a self-perpetrating one, with ties to directly to Wall Street and the Social Democrats like A. Philip Randolph, as well as in more recent years to trade union bureaucrats. The assimilationists stratum had not ceased to offer opposition to domestic issues, nor has it surrendered its claims to speak for blacks. But it is, but it is, its support for monopoly capitalism and belief in the possibility of peaceful, legal, and full integration into the system that determines its the boundaries and character of its opposition. This is the core of black bourgeois reformism. From its flow, from this flows its tactical line of reliance of bourgeois courts, legislative bodies, its treacherous compromises, and the white with the white ruling class, its reactionary sabotage of the revolutionary struggles for black rights. The bourgeois nationalist tendency had its economic roots in the objective position of the black bourgeoisie in its peculiar conditions of a stunted development within the structure of monopoly capitalism. Confronted by overwhelming competition, black business was marginal and non-industrial in character, mainly retail and service industries. Even here, it was restricted to the leftovers of the big capitalist chain enterprises and the economic and economically sounder white establishments. As a result of this particular position, the black ghetto bourgeoisie, mainly a petty bourgeoisie, found itself caught in an inescapable, inescapable bind. On the one hand, it had what has been called a vested interest in segregation, upon which it was economically dependent for its market. At the same time, it, was seg it found segregation the chief obstacle to its social development. It was torn between its immediate economic interests, which dictated maintenance of the ghetto as its main base of opposition, and its desire for social equality. The result was a split personality created by mutually exclusive desires. As I wrote in Black Liberation in 1948, the Black upper class came to the scene came late to the scene of American economic development, when the key points of the country's economic life were already dominated by big business. Its leaders sought to rally the masses through appeals to race solidarity, cooperation, and loyalty for a buy-black policy. They attempted thereby to foster a kind of black exclusivism, which would objectively run parallel to the segregationist policy of the white power elite. The less affluent sections of the petty bourgeoisie act as the most aggressive spokesmen of this type of bourgeois nationalism. The militancy of this stratum is very misleading, and in fact posed a real danger to the party at the time. I feel it most important to point out this to the delegates. 
While apparently voicing opposition to the official bourgeois reformist leadership, these petty bourgeois nationalist leaders objectively represent the interest of the bourgeoisie. Therefore, objectively, these movements reflect an attempt on the part of the petty bourgeoisie leaders to size the leadership of the rising movement of the black masses against the oppression in order to throttle it by diverting it into reactionary utopian channels away from the revolutionary struggle and hence back into the fold of bourgeois reformists. The self-isolationist tendency had been expressed in a plethora of projects for building a black economy within the walls of segregation. In times of relative prosperity, this tendency existed side by side with the dominant assimilationist trend as a more or less steady undercurrent. But in hard times, times of economic depression, this stratum has resulted as a result of its weak and tenuous economic position is a for is forced to the wall of bankruptcy as the economic conditions of the ghetto masses upon which they depend deteriorate, their strivings are blocked. Sections of them, driven to despair, frequently fall under the influence of utopian and messianic leaders who raise the banner of race solidarity and develop mass movements of separatist character. Such was the base of the Garvey movement and others which followed World War I. The growth of Garveyism came as a result of the crisis of black reformism, when organizations like the NAACP found themselves without a program to meet the needs of the masses. The end of the post-war economic crisis was followed by a period of partial capitalist stabilization and relative prosperity in the later half of the 20s. This witnessed the decline of the Garvey movement and the comeback of the NAACP to the leadership scene. But its hegemony was only short-lived. The crisis of 1929 found it, the old guard again in crisis. Again, there was an upsurge of a separatist trends, expressing the des desperation of the ghetto nationalists. Again, there was a breakaway of the middle strata, which comprised its rank-and-file lower echelon leaders. By the mid-30s, these defectors had reached into the top echelons of the organization, resulting ultimately in the resignation of Dr. Du Bois from the NAACP. Unfortunately, his defection was not to the rising revolutionary forces, but rather towards petty bourgeois nationalism. By the 50s, however, Du Bois had been one to the proletarian revolution and was a form, firm supporter of socialism. But this time, the new force had entered, a new force had entered the arena of liberation struggles. Since the Garvey movement, a black working class had emerged as an independent class force, its advanced detachment included many former Garvey militants, was the Communist Party, with a revolutionary program and strategy for black liberation. It furnished the leadership for a new, revolution, new revolutionary trend. It was a primarily because of the rapid growth of this new forest that the ghetto nationalist wave, was, which swept the black communities in the early 30s, did not coalesce into a single organization with a united program and a national center, as it did with the Garvey movement, in the post-war decade. This time, it was manifested in a series of mainly local-based movements. The main theme of my report was the call for a stepped-up stepped ideological struggle against bourgeois reformism and its reactionary programs and the policies in the current crisis. I called, upon, I called attention to the treacherous activities of the NAACP and Urban Development League which had greeted the New Deal as virtually another emancipation proclamation. 
I pointed out that the clear-cut bourgeois reformist movements, such as the NAACP and the National Urban League, with their openly declared policies of collaboration with the white ruling class, were not the main danger. To a large extent, they had already lost the confidence of the masses. Our immediate problem lay in the new neo-Garveyist movements, which were spreading like bushfire through black communities. These appealed to the nationalist mood among the masses and advocated the wildest reactionary schemes as a way out of the misery and suffering of the ghetto masses. I briefly analyzed some of these movements, against which we would have had to direct our fire in the coming period. I noted three types of such movements. For example, the nationalist movement for the establishment of a 49th state, headquartered in Chicago, the leaders of this organization held that black oppression and racism in this country were natural and inevitable. Therefore, they proposed the federal government acquire territory from the existing states, adequate in size and fertile in soil, and disposed of this land, its resources, to blacks willing to settle. This defeatist scheme, according to its advocates, would not only solve the problem, but, we were informed, we will do much to relieve economic stress throughout the country due to the vast oversupply of workers who cannot find work. Another movement of this type, also originating in Chicago, was the peace movement to Liberia. This, the leaders of this organization claimed four million members who had signed a petition addressed to the president asking that the government pay the expense of black transportation to Liberia or Ethiopia to settle. The signers of the, the petition, according to the leaders, stated that they hold themselves the readiness and to be eliminated from the impossibility, impossibly competitive labor market here by transportation and government transports to Africa. Further, they stated an exodus of the poorest people would benefit both races, improve labor conditions for those remaining, and promote the long-deferred economic recovery. Emphasizing the peaceful, non-revolutionary character of the movement, its utter subservience to imperialism, its advocates asserted that their scheme entailed no complication with foreign imperialist powers, and they were not out to set up an independent state but become law-abiding citizens in their newly adopted countries. It was clear that these schemes fit precisely into the whole program of the most racist and reactionary elements, such as the infamous Center Bilbo of Mississippi. We considered that perhaps the most dangerous of these movements were the so-called Jobs for, Black, for Blacks movement. It cropped up in many different cities under different names. In Harlem, it was called the Sufi movement. It was led by the notorious Abdul Hamid Sufi. In Baltimore, it appeared as the Costini movement. In Washington, D.C., it was the Black Alliance. The local nationalist leaders, and very often these leaders saw the movement as a remunerative hustle, all followed a similar plan. They focused their struggle for more jobs on the small, white-owned businesses and shops which refused to hire blacks. The policy of a small firm excluding blacks from employment while selling products in the ghetto created a great deal of anger and animosity among blacks. The Jobs for Black movement thrived on this justly felt anger. But by directing the struggle exclusively against these small establishments, which had only a small fraction of jobs, the broad struggle of black unemployment was diverted away from the large corporations, which were located mostly outside the ghetto. These movements tended to quickly become anti-white, seeing the enemy as the white workers who held jobs in the ghetto. Demands such as all jobs for blacks in Harlem were common. The ruling class was overjoyed with this type of movement,
It did not attack the real enemy, nor raise demand for jobs, equality, and the end to discrimination where the main masses of blacks worked and where the majority of jobs were. Instead, they sought to divert the struggle for jobs from the real enemy to white workers and aggravated racial divisions precisely at a time when conditions and, for, and potential for united struggle were very great. Even more sinister was the Pacific Movement for Eastern World. For the Eastern World, it had its main slogan, United Front of Darker Races, under the leadership of Japan. The movement developed directly in con connection with the threat of war between the U.S. and Japan, and was basically the work of Japanese imperialist agents who were attempting to divert the growing national liberation movement of the blacks into support for Japanese imperialism. Its program for race unity, as opposed to working class unity, and the unity of all toilers against imperialism, found support among some sections of black bourgeois petty bourgeois intellectuals, and even some workers. This movement was particularly poisonous because of the racial and chauvinist propaganda, attempting to convince blacks that Japan was the champion of the darker races. In practice, this movement ran counter to the real interests of the black masses and, in many cities, was an obstacle to the organization for struggle of, for independent demands, for immediate demands even. A good example was in St. Louis, where leaders of the Pacific Movement were active in defeat, attempting to defeat a strike of black and white nut pickers. The third tendency was the Liberian-American plan, which was clearly bourgeois expression of Pan-Africanism. Under disguise of assistance to Liberia, their slogan was Freedom for Liberia, it was a plan of the aspirant black bourgeoisie to participate in the comprador role of the colonial exploitation of Liberia. This can be seen in the statements of one of its leaders. We are beating our hearts and souls trying to break through the wall, thick walls of prejudice which bar us from the higher brackets of the of big industry here in America, where there is a virgin field which we could develop in Africa. The so-called plan to free Liberia carefully avoided any mention of the role of U.S. imperialism. Firestone owned a huge rubber plantation in Liberia in the exploitation of the Liberian people. This plan received a large amount of publicity through the black-owned media. Its appeal to the impoverished black masses was mainly that a free Liberia could show a way to improving the conditions of colored folk throughout the world. The propaganda was aimed at the Getty Betty bourgeoisie, themselves driven into poverty by the Depression. The movement found its own theoreticians to justify such a scheme, colloquing it in a pseudo-revolutionary terms designed to appeal to the poverty-stricken blacks. Foremost among these theoreticians was the renegade George Padmore, apostate communist, whose numerous articles appeared throughout the black press. It is a credit to the party's correct strategy and tactics in the Black Freedom Front, along the with our own revolutionary line, that these rev tendencies remained as scattered local organizations, never able to unite nationally with, as Garvey's UNIA did. We knew that to maintain their credibility among the masses, these nationalists had in some way you know, to struggle against the system. To this extent, we would unite with them in a principled way while criticizing their idealist schemes. Our purpose in this was to better was to be better be in a position to lead the broad masses, many of whom had having genuine genuine national aspirations, 
were temporarily taken in by these utopian escapist nationalists. Petty bourgeois nationalism in the party. From this account of the programs and activities of the various brands of utopian black nationalism, I addressed myself to the struggle against the ideological influences of these movements in the party. This was a touchy question. It was the first time this question had been dealt with in such a forthright manner. We had spoken much of white chauvinism, the main danger, and our task in relation to it. There had been considerable strengthening of this fight, but there still wasn't much still was much room for improvement. But little had been said about petty bourgeois nationalism within our own ranks. It was not surprising that the pressure of the of the growing wave of ghetto nationalism should find expression in the party. There was a tendency among some black comrades to surrender to propaganda of local nationalists. This was revealed in St. Louis in connection with the pro-Japanese movement and in Harlem with respects to the Jobs for Blacks campaign. After all, there's no Chinese wall between the party and the masses, just the ruling class ideology of white supremacy and its influences on white comrades. It was not unusual that black comrades would be similarly affected by petty bourgeois black petty bourgeois nationalist ideology. These methods and sentiment were expressed in feelings of distrust of white comrades, in skepticism about the possibility of winning white workers to, to active support for the struggle of black rights, and in that attitude that nothing could be accomplished until white chauvinism was completely eliminated. This latter was particularly dangerous because it failed to understand that white chauvinism could only be broken down in the process of struggle. But more than a mood or sentiment was the beginning of a theoretical rationale represented in the connection contention that even to raise the question of bourgeois nationalism would weaken the struggle against white supremacy. I denounce this dangerous counterposing of the fight against white chauvinism to the struggle against bourgeois nationalism. Of course, white chauvinism was the main danger, but communists could not be content with the mere formula. With mere formula. As Stalin had said when dealing with a similar controversy concerning a great Russian chauvinism and local nationalism in the Soviet Union. It would be foolish to attempt to give ready-made recipes suitable for all times and for all conditions as regards to the chief and lesser danger. Such recipes do not exist. The chief danger is the deviation against which we have ceased to fight, thereby allowing it to grow into a danger to the state. The fact that white chauvinism was the main danger by no means implied that bourgeois nationalism under certain conditions could not become the main danger if a particular situation in the development of our work among blacks. No one could deny that this was the situation that developed in St. Louis and Harlem. Our experience in these struggles show that bourgeois nationalism, if not fought, could become the main obstacle to advancing our work among blacks. The struggle against white chauvinism and petty bourgeois nationalism went hand in hand. It was necessary to struggle on two fronts, for both deviated from the same line of proletarian internationalism. Stalin correctly stated, If you want to keep both deviations under fire, then aim primarily against this source, against those who depart from internationalism. I tried to hit home sharply to the delegates that most that the most dangerous forms of petty bourgeois nationalism in the party were not its open expressions, but rather its hidden forms. The clearest example was the case of Comrade Norwell in Detroit. The Central Committee had de- definite information information that Norwell had become become a center around which these tendencies in the party gravitated, and 
from whom comrades who erred in this direction found greatest encouragement. Norwell had spread veiled inter inferences that some black comrades who were carrying out the work of the party were Uncle Tom's. He had attempted to use all difficulties and shortcomings of the party to disrupt and undermine morale, particularly among newer comrades. I denounced Norwell's activities, charging that they created an atmosphere in which stool pigeons and provocateurs could carry on their best work. I was now at a summation of my report. It was clear, I said, that the struggle against reformism and the black movement included bourgeois and petty bourgeois nationalist influences, could go forward only on the basis of an all-around strengthening of our work among the black masses. The increased activities of the reformist leaders could only be met and defeated on the basis of the widest application of our united front tactics. This meant that we had to penetrate reformist-led mass organizations on the basis of immediate and specific demands of the black masses. Thus, we could draw the people into a struggle over the heads of the treacherous reformist and bourgeois nationalist leaders. This whole situation confronted us with the necessity of immediately strengthening the leadership of the proletariat and the party in the black liberation movement. Black industrial workers were then and remain today the most powerful, resolute, and consistently revolutionary force in the black movement. It is only under their leadership and that of its communist vanguard that the black united front can maintain a consistently anti-imperialist character, unite with the multiple, multinational working class, and eventually overthrow imperialism. Such a strategy called for radical improvement in our trade union and shop work. We had to energetically take up the struggle for the day-to-day -day demands of black workers in every struggle. This also had to be done by unemployment councils. On this basis, we could immediately carry through energetic and sustained recruitment of black workers into our revolutionary trade unions, into the revolutionary opposition within the AFL. Simultaneously, it was necessary to carry through a bold policy of drawing the most militant element among them into the leadership of the trade union and unemployed work. The whole question of developing cadres among blacks had, be had to be more rapidly pushed forward in the party, as well as in the revolutionary mass organizations. This drive for the strengthening of our work among the basic sections of the black working class was connected with the intensification of the struggle along the whole front whole along the whole front of black liberation in this we had to immediately push forward the campaign for black political rights against lynch terror and all forms of persecution for the freedom of the scottsboro boys angelo herndon and others i called for centering this campaign around the lsnr's bill of civil rights for black people a mass petition drive for the bill was to have been immediately launched in connection and connected with the development of mass action in all localities. In the South, we had to strengthen our concentration, concentration work in key areas, steel, coal, textile, and tobacco industries. We had to build up the party, revolutionary trade unions, and opposition movement within the AFL on the basis of drawing black and white workers into joint struggle. Our demand should have focused on the needs of the masses against the NRA differentials, discriminated and increased fascist attacks upon the rights of black and white workers. Simultaneously, we had to take steps to strengthen the movement of sharecroppers and poor farmers against the cotton plow, plow under the Bankheed Bill, against the whole system of semi-fuel slavery of the agrarian masses.
It was necessary to further develop our revolutionary agrarian program, in the center of which we mu must be the slogan of confiscation of the land of the wh big white landowners and capitalists in favor of the black and white tillers. In all of this, it was necessary to bring forth more energetically our full program for black liberation, equal rights, the right of self-determination, and confiscation of land. We had to carry through the widest popularization of the achievements of the Soviet Union in the solution of the national question. Likewise, it was important not only to popularize the program of the Communist International for the Black colonies in Africa and the West Indies, but to develop actions in support of the revolutionary movement in these colonies against imperialism. In building a united front from below, with the masses of Black toilers in the reformist-led organizations, we had to guard against any leftist distortion of our line, any tendency to lump the masses in these organizations together with their leaders. This would play directly into the hands of the petty bourgeois and bourgeois misleaders, inevitably leading towards our isolation. On the contrary, it was absolutely necessary in our approach to these masses to make a clear distinction between them and their leaders. At the same time, we had to be equally alert against the right opportunist tendency to underestimate, underestimate the class role of black reformism. Such a tendency would lead to lagging at the tail of, of reformist and reactionary nationalist leaders, weakening proletarian hegemony and party leadership of the black liberation movement. An effective struggle against reformist leaders and the winning of the masses from the re reactionary influence demanded once and for all that we seriously take up the task of building the LSNR into an independent mass organization around the party's program of struggle for black liberation. Only on the basis of building up our work among these lines would we be able to wield that unbreakable unity of black and white toilers. My report lasted two hours and was considered a highlight of the convention. I received a standing ovation. By a motivation motion of a delegate from Michigan, my report, The Road to Black Liberation, was published in pamphlet form. I was later placed on the Politburo as a result of this speech. Looking back, before the party could take the, uh, the lead in the Black Liberation Movement, it had to demonstrate in action to Blacks that their deeply rooted distrust of white workers, nurtured by race riots and discrimination and encouraged by established leaders, was an obstacle to united action in the crisis. The party was able to do this because it had a comprehensive program to deal with the crisis and the other groups did not. In Scottsboro, the party effectively discredited the legalistic strategy of the NAACP, its reliance on courts, lawyers, and liberal politicians. It was in our day-to-day -day, day -day work in the northern ghettos, the unemployment demonstrations, the campaigns against evictions and police brutality, and in the struggles to organize non-discriminatory unions, that the party won hegemony over the local bourgeois nationalist organizations. Such movements were springing up all the time in Chicago, New York, Baltimore, St. Louis, Washington, and Detroit. These nationalist and separatist organizations exploited the antagonisms which inevitably developed between blacks and white immigrants in neighboring ghettos. This was further exacerbated by the presence of white immigration shopkeepers in the black community. But the nationalists failed to take two factors into account. First, that the depression was driving many of these white immigrant groups into desperation and moving them to the left. And second, that the party was waging a relentless struggle against white chauvinism in its own ranks and in, in its mass organizations it participated in. The unemployment councils, the TUL unions, and the ILD, all active in the early depression, enrolled large number of whites 
in struggle on the platform which proclaimed full equality for Blacks and resistance to all forms of discrimination in, in employment, in distribution of relief, and in the courts. Moreover, the Scottsboro campaign demonstrated, as Adam Clayton Powell pointed out, that there were hundreds of thousands of white workers throughout the country and the world that would go to meetings and demonstrations and even get arrested to protect eight black, black youths from illegal lynching. These actions helped to demonstrate that the white workers were willing, under party leadership, to struggle against their own chauvinism and support the special demands for the black liberation struggle. But equally important was the fact that the party's program was far more effective than that of the nationalists in winning relief for the black community in the face of unemployment and high rents. The nationalists struggled for the right to, to all jobs in the black community, but most black workers worked outside the ghetto. Even if the nationalists succeeded, the number of jobs they could win would only reach a fraction of the black unemployment. In contrast, the party's demonstrations, such as sit-ins at relief offices, won immediate relief for hundreds of thousands of unemployed blacks in cities throughout the country, in Birmingham, Richmond, New York, Chicago, and almost every major urban center. The party's mass demonstrations brought results, and along with our defense of black political prisoners and the struggle against white chauvinism, it won us the respect of the black masses throughout America. Large numbers of black workers and intellectuals were attracted to our ranks. In my position as head of the Black Department, I tried to guide this two-pronged ideological struggle against bourgeois assimilationism on the one hand and petty bourgeois, bourgeois and bourgeois nationalism on the other. The success of this ideological struggle in the Black community was dependent on a relentless and a continuous struggle against white chauvinism by white communists and effective practical mass work by the party in the North and South. From 1930 to 1935, both of these conditions existed, and now, and we became the single most effective and respected organization in the national black community. The Eighth Party Convention called for building the LSNR into a mass organization. We felt the need for a black-led revolutionary organization to counter the NAACP leaders, who were attempting a comeback after Scottsboro. They wanted to divert the mass trend towards towards militant confrontation back into channels of reliance on capitalist courts and legislative bodies. Towards this end, they were trumpeting the Costigan-Wagner anti-lynch bill in an effort to regain their lost prestige. Not only did they seek to confine the struggle to legislative channels and bolster faith in capitalist institutions, they sought support for a bill which would in fact could be used as a weapon against the struggles of workers. Immediately upon my return to New York, we launched a campaign to rebuild the LSNR. We called a meeting of the National Council of the Organization. At this meeting, Langston Hughes, who had recently returned to the Soviet Union, was elected president. I was elected national secretary, relieving Richard B. Moore, who was in ill health. Ben Davis Jr., just up from Atlanta, was made editor of the Liberator, formerly the Harlem Liberator, which now became the official organ of the LSNR. Davis was replacing Maud White, who, had sent, who was sent to Cleveland as a party section organizer. Detroit Scottsboro. As a first step to rebuilding the organization, I went on a speaking tour of Midwest industrial centers and addressed successful mass rallies in Detroit, Cleveland, Chicago, and St. Louis. These rallies were sponsored by local LSNR groups and in some cases jointly with the International Labor Defense. The burning civil rights issue in these cities was police terror against black, the black community. In one of the most glaring examples I encountered was in Detroit, 
There, the party in the LSNR chapter were in the midst of a campaign to defend James Victory, a black World War I veteran, charged with robbery and assault in an attempt to murder a white woman. The situation was building up to a race riot. Detroit was a virtual company town with of, of the auto magnates and allied business interests. They controlled the government, the police, and the press. At the same time, the city was a key concentration of pro-fascist elements. Foremost among these were Detroit's own radio priests, Father Cowlin, and his followers, the Reverend and his followers. The Reverend Gerald L. K. Smith, one of Huey Long's chief lieutenants, had also settled in Detroit. The area was also a Ku Klux Klan stronghold and the home base of the notorious Black Legion, split off from the KKK. These various other local hate groups all engage in fanning the flames of racial national hatred among the city's polygot labor force consisting of Poles, the largest foreign-born element, and a, a large contingent of Southern poor, whites, and blacks. The frame-up of Jane's victory occurred in the midst of one of the most vicious campaigns of racist, incite, racist incitement in Detroit's history. It was launched by the police department under the leadership of Colonel Pickert in conjunction with the employment-controlled press of the city. For two weeks, the news media, and especially the Yellow Sheet, the Detroit Times, carried on a vicious drivel drive of slanderous race-baiting in which blacks were depicted as natural rapists, voodooists, murderers, and all-around thugs who were conspiring to assault white women. The police department issued special instructions to arrest on-site blacks found in white neighborhoods. Colonel Pickett boasted that an average of 50 arrests a day were made. This frenzied manhunt finally culminated in the arrest and frame-up of James Victory, who was made a target for the whole campaign of lynch hysteria. The local LSNR and the ILD immediately came to the defense of Victory. When I arrived there, they were in the process of building a United Front Defense Committee. From the outset, we saw that the terror campaign and the frame-up of an innocent worker, Victory, had a twofold purpose. On the one hand, to intensify the oppression of blacks, and on the other, to divide and split the workers and in this way to forestall the growing tide of working-class struggle against the auto lords. The Defense Committee formulated demands which included an immediate end to the terror campaign and manhunt, immediate release of victory, withdrawal of special police details from black neighborhoods, freedom of speech and movement for black people in all parts of the city, an end to the discrimination in relief and on the job, and a call for united action of black and white toilers against the common oppressor. A series of meetings were called. Resolutions and telegrams poured on the city's officials. A tremendous mass struggle developed to defend victory. I spoke at a large mass rally held at the Israel Baptist Church along with Reverend Graham, John Bolins of the United of the Union Theological Seminary, and William Weinstone, district organizer of the Communist Party. I remember comrades at this meeting and activists at the campaign included Joe Billups, head of the LSNR chapter, LeBron Simmons, a young black law student, and his brother John, and Nat Gainley, a trade union director for the party. In my speech, I placed the defense of Jane's victory in the context of the overall struggle for black rights, emphasizing that success could only be achieved through revolutionary mass struggle of black and white workers. I scored black reformists who stood aloof from the struggle and refused to say anything about the crying injustices and insults perpetrated against black people. The committee retained the famous labor attorney Maurice Sugar to defend James' victory. 
At the trial, Sugar made a brilliant and militant defense, breaking down the prosecution's lies and fabrications and exposing the flimsy character of the frame-up. The mass protest combined with Sugar's legal defense resulted in the freeing of James Victory. This important triumph was a testimony for the need of mass struggle in defense of black rights and stood in sharp contrast to the reformist treachery of the NAACP leadership. I left Detroit in high spirits. The next stop was Chicago, where I addressed a mass meeting called by the American Consolidated Trades Council. The meeting was part of a campaign for employment in black construction workers in the DuSable High School building project. Chicago was followed up by stops in St. Louis, Cleveland, and Kansas City. Following the tour, there was a short spurt of activity by LSNR chapters, but this soon petered out. Soon the only active chapters were left in Harlem and south side of Chicago. It was not long before it became clear to me that the LSNR as a national organization was dead and could not be revived. What had happened? Why had the LSNR never really gotten off the ground as a broad mass organization? Its failure was inevitable, inherent in the organizational structure and program of the LSNR as it had been conceived. Its founding conference in the fall of 1930 had adopted a program and manifesto which included the full program of the Communist Party on the Afro-American question, including destruction of the plantation system, confiscation of land without compensation, and the right of self-determination in the Black Belt. It called for affiliation with other organizations to the LSNR on the basis of support for this complete program. This obvious res- the obvious result of these rigid demands was that no other groups would affiliate with the LSNR. LSNR branches of individual members were small, sectarian groups made up almost entirely of CP members and close sympathizers. Little effort was made to build the LSNR as a true, as a true united front body, organizing small organizing joint actions around immediate issues. Thus, the LNR remained a small, isolated group. These problematic roadblocks were accompanied by problems of white chauvinism in the party. Within party circles, the LSNR became an excuse for failing to tackle head-on the Afro-American question and white chauvinism. Some even called the American question, some even called the LSNR the Black Party. This assumed the battle for black rights could be left to a black party, rather than being a priority for both whites and blacks within one party. This was a tendency to defer the questions in the field to the LSNR, and this became a cover for a white chauvinist underestimation of of the Afro-American question. It allowed many comrades to neatly sidestep dealing with white chauvinism and the revolutionary importance of of the black struggle. In this sense, the LSNR became, actually became an obstacle for the mobilization of the entire party for Afro-American work. For all these reasons, the LSNR did not become a mass organization as it was originally conceived. It remained essentially a paper organization, and all our belated attempts to revive it were failures. The LSNR as a national organization ceased to exist. The last issue of the Liberator appeared at the end of 1934. A few branches, those clearly associated with local issues, survived. In 1936, the LSNR was superseded by the National Black Congress, a genuine United Front organization, which I will speak in later chapters. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Book Club Commune. Next episode, we'll be reading Chapter 17, Chicago, Against War and Fascism. I hope you have enjoyed this episode. Please continue to like and share this and spread it around. The whole purpose of this is to 
educate and inform people about texts that usually are inaccessible to most people, whether by they don't have access to read it, or if they need an audio accompaniment to read it anyways. You spreading around uh, this podcast is helping me fulfill the overall goal of it. And it is very appreciative if you are able to help me achieve that goal. Again, thank you all so much for listening to this episode. I'll catch you all next time. Solidarity forever and keep on reading.